Well, some of you are here tonight because um, it's your church, and it's what you do on Christmas Eve. Others are here because you were invited, maybe by a really persistent neighbor, um, maybe a family member, kept coming to you and saying, hey, you got to go with me on Christmas Eve. Now, typically, there's, there's questions when people get invitations. Typically, the questions come back like, okay, what, so are they going to make me sing some songs I don't know? Is the pastor creepy? I'll let you decide that one, okay? We've been talking about invitations here in the last couple of weeks, what it, what it looks like when God extended an invitation. I've been contemplating a day when I was in college when I got three invitations in the exact same day. And it didn't seem coming, didn't expect it, but let me tell you about the third one first. And the, the third one was an invitation that was given to me by my flight crew leader. And my flight crew leader said, in no uncertain terms, come with me. Now, it didn't sound like a real gentle invitation. And to my 22-year-old ears, my senior year in college, it didn't sound like an optional event. So I thought I would comply. Now, I was mad. I was really mad. And mad was about to be accompanied by a partner called embarrassment. The two were going to walk hand in hand along with me and allow me just to back up for a moment so I can explain what's going on. It's a, it's a beautiful spring morning. I'm in my senior year of college. I was a major in commercial aviation. Had all my flight ratings, all my certifications, everything necessary to chase after that commercial pilot dream. And along with that, I had the 22-year-old ego that accompanies those kind of things, okay? So you can kind of get the picture in your mind. And so the problem was, not that I was a good pilot, but that I knew I was a good pilot. And so the ego didn't fit in this room. And that kind of affected the first invitation. I told you about the third one. The first invitation was earlier in the day when a group of my fellow class members who were also seniors decided to extend an invitation to see who could land their airplane in the shortest distance on the runway I should throw this part in. Um, it was an unsanctioned event. <laughs> None of the instructors knew what we were doing. Um, they didn't send us out to do that, but it was just a kind of a dare. Hey, let's see who can land and touch down and stop in the shortest distance without flipping the plane over, okay? You can see where this is going, right? Okay. So I, I accepted the first invitation because I thought in my mind, I can grease that baby on the runway. I know that approach path. I've flown it hundreds of times. Final approach is mine. I'll bring it in low. I'll bring it in tight, and I will stop it. So even though my approach was on target the way that it was supposed to be, the next invitation that came to me was the second invitation. And the second invitation was from a silent partner in my airplane. Every airplane that I've ever flown has this silent partner, and it's called an altimeter. And an altimeter tells you whether you're too high or too low. So my silent partner extended an invitation to me which sounded like this, climb higher, climb higher, climb higher. Now, even though the VASI system was on the runway, which tells you red and white and lets you know if you're too high or too low, I was ignoring that. And I was looking at my altimeter, and it was telling me I was about 
100 to 150 feet lower than I should be for an approach, but I decided to ignore all of that. Now, I did grease the approach. I came in, put it on the runway. My friends that were standing there to watch me began saying, you did it, you did it, you beat us all, okay? So I taxied back to the ramp, parked the plane, and I'm standing in the flight operations office with my friends, and we're talking back and forth. I'm gleaming and gloating. When I look across the flight operations office, and I see that third invitation being talked about. My flight crew chief commander is talking to the chief of operations in a mumbled tone, and then they both turn and point at me, Kring, come with us now. See, it wasn't a very gentle invitation. So they led me down the hallway, anger is building inside of me, and I was angry at myself. I was mad because I knew I'd done something really stupid. And that's when embarrassment kicked in. I could feel the flushness in my face when I walked into the hangar, and I could see all the mechanical crew standing around this plane, scratching their head and looking at it, wondering how it got a green paint job on the belly of the airplane. And it wasn't because I landed in really tall grass. It was because something much taller came in contact with my airplane. I had creamed a couple pine trees on my way in and didn't know that I'd done it. I was so focused on doing what I was needing to do to beat them that I clipped right through the top of some pine trees, ground up the needles, and it sprayed that fresh green all over the belly of the airplane. And I had no way of talking myself out of it because there was a branch lodged in the landing gear. Okay? <laughs> Everybody knew what I did. So I could just imagine the phone call to my parents later that day. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Kring, to tell you, but your son was too stupid to fly 50 feet higher. I didn't listen to the altimeter. The invitation that had been presented to me was, pay attention. We're giving you this for your help. Here's your warning, Mark. Get up where you're supposed to be. It's right there in front of you. Well, we've been looking at the invitation that God has extended to each one of us. A couple of weeks ago, we started talking about the invitation in which God built a bridge. He's the road builder. And he said, hey, there's, there's an invitation for you to cross this bridge. You want access to me? There's a bridge by which you must cross. Well, this last weekend, we started looking at the invitation that God gave through the angels. When the angels showed up and started talking to the shepherds and said, God is being born among you. Go check it out. Well, here's the third invitation that we're going to talk about this morning or this evening. It's the invitation to investigate. And just very briefly, I want to talk with you about what it means to investigate what God has invited you to look at, which is this. How can God become a man? How is that possible that God would become a man? So here's the invitation. It comes from Luke 2.10, and it says this. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So they've been invited. The shepherds have been invited to the greatest event ever to investigate it, ever in the history of the world. Never before, not ever, did anything sound so bizarre as this. That God would come to earth as a baby to be born in a cattle stall and he's going to lay his head on straw and eventually be killed by the very same people he came to serve? So I'll say it for you. It's illogical. It's bizarre. It's inexplicable. It's absurd. How could God become a man? 
Now, Mary had questions when she heard this story. I don't know if you've looked at it that way, but let me show you in Luke chapter 2 the question that Mary specifically had when the angel came to see her. Look at verse 31 with me. This is the angel talking to her. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, great, I'm really good with that, right? Was that her response? No! How can this be? Let alone, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. What? How is, how is this possible? Well, let's look at the angel's response to her. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. Oh, well, that explains it, right? That's really clear. No, it's not. I don't get it. So Paul took this issue on and this is what I want to touch on you really lightly with. Paul confronts this issue head on with a powerful argument to help us process this. How does God become a man? Look with me on the screen at Philippians 2.6. It says this, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So, I've got five Greek words for you to learn tonight. I'm going to go through them really, really fast, but it's going to help us a lot. First of all, when we're told in verse 6 that he existed in the form of God, there's two really important words there to help us understand the Christmas story. He existed. First of all, this word existed is crucial because it's the word huparko. And it means a continuousness of his previous state. So, although he huparko Although he existed in this continuous state, never changing, it means absolutely unalterable. He has this form of God also combined with it. So the word form is one you might be familiar with in the English language. It's the word morphe. And we use it for the word morph. So it talks about an adjustment, a change of parts, but it has more to do with the nature. So what we see here in the big idea is this. Before the incarnation, before Jesus came to earth, and this might be a newsflash for some of you, from all eternity past, Jesus pre-existed in the form of God, completely equal with God as God the Son. So by His very nature, Jesus always has been, always will be, and is currently forever God the Son. He didn't arrive at the time of Bethlehem. He always existed. And that means as God, he had all the rights, all the privileges, all the power. So we're also told in verse 6 that he did not regard something. He did not regard equality with God. Now this word equality is really interesting. Because it's the word, this is your fourth Greek word already, if you've been, or third Greek word if you've been keeping track. It's the word isos. We use it today in the English language. Think of an isosceles triangle. Two exactly equal sides. Or think of isomers. We're talking about chemicals at that point. Chemicals that are different in certain properties but are identical in atomic weight. 
So when we use the word isos, he did not regard isos, absolute equality with God. That means Jesus in every way had equality with him, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be clutched, something that he would hold on to. Even though it's rightfully his, he didn't regard it as something to hold on to. So without ceasing to be God, he lays aside the glory that he had as God. And he gave up something in order to come to us. And here's the critical part. This decision right here is what puts the Christmas story in motion. This decision, this is the choice that causes us to gather together tonight. At any time, Jesus could have appealed to God the Father. As a matter of fact, we're told in Matthew 26, Jesus had at his beckoning call 12 legions of angels to get him out of the situation. He told us that himself. But instead of doing that, what did he do? According to verse 6, he emptied himself. So here's your your fourth Greek word. It's the word kino. Scholars recall it, uh, call it the kenosis. The kino is this. Kino means he made himself empty. He abased himself. Made himself of no reputation whatsoever. And so what this is doing is it's pointing to the stripping of all of his self-interest, but not his deity. Everything that made him God, except he retained who he was as God. And so the next thing we're told is that he took the form of a bondservant. So as God, he always existed, but yet he's willing to serve us. Do you know what a bondservant was in the first century? That's a person who was hired by his Roman master to carry his master's burdens So when we're given this description by Paul, we're told that Jesus is going to be the ultimate bondservant who's going to carry a burden that no other man is capable of carrying. That's why Isaiah said what he did in Isaiah 53. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So even though he's God, he has the capacity because he created us in the image of God He could have shown up here like Adam in the perfect, created, original state before the fall of man. But what does he decide to do? He comes in the fallen state, completely encompassed with all the same infirmities that bother us. He needed sleep just like we need to sleep. So we're told in verse 7, he's being made in the likeness of men. And here's your fifth and last Greek word, the word homoioma. And it means this, the abstract resemblance. In other words, he's made like to, but he's different. Now, some of you are thinking right now, I knew it. I knew there had to be something. That, that word proves it. There had to be something different. How could he do this? His humanity was genuine. No question about it. But he's different from all other humans, according to this word. What is that difference? And I almost want to say it with a whisper because it seems so good to be true but almost so impossible were it not for God's word saying this. Here's how he's different. Hebrews 4.15 The one who has been tempted in all things just as we have but without sin. Absolutely flawless. That's Homoyama. 
That's how he was different than us. So Jesus is not a clone or some facsimile of a man. He became exactly like all other human beings, having all the attributes of humanity. God on earth, he took upon himself all of our frailties. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He needed to drink. He felt pain. The ultimate proof of that, he died. He could experience death. So he became hungry just like you do. He was tempted in all things just like you are. But without sin. So this is where it ends in verse 8. He was being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he looks like a man, but human likeness is not the whole story as we see in verse 8. He humbled himself. Look at that. God who breathes out stars, who speaks galaxies into existence, is working with Joseph, making a bench in the carpenter's shop. The woman whom he created is calling him to supper to wash his hands. Does that not just mess with your mind? You have to say, it's absurd. Becoming a man was that humbling. Taking the nature of a servant was even more humbling. But here is the illogical part of it. We're told that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you might look at that and say, Mark, come on, it's Christmas. Do we really have to talk about death? Well, if you remove that component, you have no reason to celebrate Christmas because then you don't have a Savior. That's the truth of Scripture. Because the angel said, He came as a Savior. The one who's born for you is Christ the Lord, your Savior. So Jesus said this about Himself, Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now you would think at this point, He would say, Enough! I've left the mansion in glory. I created galaxies. I formed the Rocky Mountains. I left my palace. I took on the form of a man. I'm serving and washing people's feet. Enough! But that's not our God. Perfect submission took him all the way to death. And here's why. Because this is the heart of the Bible, and it's the heart of what New Hope is about. This is what we know from 2 Corinthians 5. This is what God the Father did to God the Son. Verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is a marvelous truth. It's infinite. It's just so far beyond us. We have to say, it's absurd. It seems incomprehensible, but it's necessary to believe that the one who was clothed with glory before the Father, before the worlds were made, he stood with God the Father in eternity. The brightness of the Father's glory shone on him. The one who spoke the worlds into existence. Scripture says the exact representation of God. All things were made by him. This one emptied himself of all of his splendor. He left everything behind. 
occasionally, some of it leaked out. Some of the glory of God shone through him. Lazarus, come forth. It's a good thing he said Lazarus or everyone would have come forth. Water, be still. That's your God. His power is unlimited. But the Creator took on the form of the created. And the infinite became finite. And He who created everything and who owns everything relinquished everything. Even though 12 legions of God's warrior angels could have bailed Him out in a moment. That's not our God. So let me take you back to what we looked at this weekend. If you were here, this will be really familiar to you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Look at your God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. It is absolutely absurd if God Himself had not been the one to declare it. Because God can't lie. He's incapable of it. So it's wonderfully absurd, church, that your God would come just for us. No wonder the shepherds responded the way that they did. Remember the invitation? Look at their response to it. Luke chapter 2, verse 15, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Here's the amazing thing to me. Understand this. He knew. He knew from the very beginning everything that he was going to endure, the course that he had to run. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. So he knew from embryo to it's finished. He knew what was waiting for him and he did it for you. And he did it for me. So when we look at Philippians 2.6 and we read Paul's account about how our God emptied Himself so that He would come to earth because He's the only one that could do it, let me take you back to that description in verse 6. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because we have verse 9, and we have a reason to sing, which you're going to do in just a moment. And here's the reason, verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the church said, Amen. Let's stand and pray together and then sing. Father, there's nothing more we could say except thank you. And what we're about to do through singing, Father, I ask that you would receive it as an expression 
of our identity in you, who we know ourselves to be in you, that we are a people who are saved by grace through your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us. What we sing, Father, help us to mean it from our hearts because we sing as a people with gratitude. It's in Jesus' name we proclaim this. Amen.